0: You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks.
1: And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. Today's April 1st.
0: Since Russia launched its invasion, roughly 4 million Ukrainians have fled their country. And a total of 10 million people, that's one in four Ukrainians, have left their homes, including those who are now internally displaced. This crisis is one of Europe's biggest mass migrations since World War II, and according to Rand's Shelley Colbertson, it's likely to be long-term. A study Colbertson co-authored last year found that only about one-third of refugees return to their home countries even ten years after a conflict has ended. So, if Ukrainians are expected to remain in host countries for years to come, then supporting them over the long haul will be critical. Recent RAND research provides insights on how to do this. One study suggests that both refugees and host countries can benefit by matching workers to areas with ample job opportunities – For example, Spain needs half a million construction workers, Germany has said it will need to import 400,000 workers per year to fill labor market gaps, and both Poland and Hungary face a chronic shortage of workers. Ukrainians could help these countries meet those needs. Another RAND report examined solutions for educating refugee children, who make up about half of those fleeing Ukraine. One potential short-term solution to help ensure Ukrainian children have access to education is to let them fill existing vacancies in schools. But in areas that experience a sudden increase in refugees, such as eastern Poland, a rapid expansion of classroom space and teacher workforce may be required. Recent history offers several lessons about how caring for refugees in host communities can go wrong, Colbertson says. But that means there's also knowledge about how to mitigate such risks. She says deliberate action can and should go a long way toward making this situation right.
1: Before we move on to new Rand research out this week, here's a rundown of more recent insights from our experts on the war in Ukraine. Rand Samuel Cherup said that while the U.S. can and should hold President Vladimir Putin accountable for his, quote, murderous gambit, Brokering a deal with Moscow to end the war may be the best solution. This may be the only way that the U.S. can achieve its short-term goals, denying Putin a victory on the battlefield, avoiding escalation of the conflict, and limiting its humanitarian and economic costs, as well as its long-term objectives, namely ensuring international stability and reducing the potential for future regional conflict. Quote, However distasteful it may be to reach a compromise with Putin after the carnage he has unleashed, the U.S. should work to secure a negotiated settlement to the conflict sooner rather than later, Cherub says.
0: The BBC World Service recently announced that it was restarting its daily shortwave transmissions to Ukraine. Rand's Benjamin Sachs calls shortwave radio an enduring tool in the global fight against disinformation. It can't be hacked or bombed, and it's notoriously difficult to jam. Shortwave has proven time and again, Sachs says, that it can provide reliable information when and where that information is needed most—in authoritarian regimes, in human disaster scenarios, and in wartime. The U.S. shortwave station Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty may even want to consider following the BBC's lead in restarting shortwave services to Ukraine.
1: Sachs and co-authors Abby Tingstad, Stephanie Pazard, and Scott Stevenson discussed their research on governance in the Arctic and explained how the war could break down long-standing cooperation in this critical region. One concern is the potential for conflict to spill over into the Arctic. The far northern region could be on a collision course toward becoming its own theater of war for the first time since the Vikings, they say. Additionally, increased civilian or military activities in the Arctic region could mean a greater chance of a collision, nuclear accident, or misunderstanding that could rapidly escalate tensions between Russia, Western Arctic states, and even China. And such escalation is made more likely by the fact that the Arctic is deeply important to Russia.
0: Much has been reported about the Ukrainian military's tough resistance against a much larger and more capable Russian army. There are many factors contributing to this, including combat experience gained in the 2014 conflict, broad public support, and a committed population, not to mention Russian miscalculations. But how has past U.S. security assistance, roughly $2 billion between 2014 and 2020, helped to equip and prepare Ukrainian forces? According to Louis Alexander Berg of Georgia State University and RAND's Andrew Radin, one key reason security assistance may have helped in this case is that Ukraine's defense institutions were improving as U.S. aid was rolling in. This suggests that U.S. security assistance could have a greater effect by focusing on institutions.
1: Also noting Ukraine's strong resistance, RAND's James Quinlivan explained that if this war reaches a drawn-out counterinsurgency phase, Putin may not have enough Ukrainians on his side to retain territory that Russia has occupied. And Russians would need Ukrainian collaborators, many Ukrainians in fact, to help rule,
0: Quinlivan says. To read more about these topics and find all of Rand's latest insights on the war in Ukraine, visit www.rand.org slash RussiaUkraine.
1: A new RAND report out this week looks at what might make someone more susceptible or more resistant to truth decay, the diminishing role of facts in American public life. RAND researchers have been studying truth decay for several years, learning more about what drives this phenomenon, including human cognitive processes. This latest report examines some of those processes, looking at three cognitive biases, availability bias, unjustified confidence and in-group bias, and three reasoning processes, numeracy or skill with numbers, scientific reasoning, and magical reasoning, which includes holding a variety of superstitious beliefs. All of these cognitive processes may be implicated in truth decay, but to what extent? The authors conducted a nationally representative survey to find out. Through the results, they identified that the greatest predictors for an individual's resistance or susceptibility to truth decay were reasoning processes that develop over a lifetime. Specifically, greater numerical and scientific reasoning and lower magical reasoning were linked to greater resistance to truth decay. The survey also revealed some concerning findings. For instance, non-white respondents were consistently more susceptible to truth decay. This may reflect distrust of traditional information sources among groups that have been systemically persecuted by institutions of government, medicine, and science. Another troubling finding? Perceptions of key issues, worldviews, and even ways of processing information appear to be split in the U.S. according to partisanship and religiosity. This suggests that there's a major barrier to finding common factual grounds on which to make progress on important issues. To learn more about this new report, the Truth Decay phenomenon, and what you can do to stop it, visit www.ran.org slash truth decay.
0: Where you live has a significant impact on individual health and well-being. Environmental factors such as air quality, heat, traffic levels, and even how much greenery there is around you all contribute to quality of life. And these factors vary widely between communities. In the U.S., for example, communities of color and low-income communities are more likely to be near hazardous waste facilities, have poorer air quality, and experience the effects of climate change. These disparities are not accidental. Historical policies such as redlining have had an enduring impact on urban neighborhoods. Redlining began in the 1930s, when the homeowners' loan corporation graded neighborhoods based on their perceived risk for home loan lending. Those designated as most risky, outlined in red on maps, were often inner-city areas with majority black and immigrant populations. These redlined neighborhoods offered fewer opportunities for residents to accumulate wealth through homeownership and received less public investment. A new RAND tool combines historical data from the homeowners' loan corporation with information on present-day environmental measures such as air pollution, traffic, and tree coverage, revealing some of the long-term effects of redlining in more than 200 U.S. cities, big and small. To see whether your hometown is on the list and what the data says about environmental racism, visit RAND.org.
1: Before we close the show today, a topic that doesn't typically get a lot of airtime. Wastewater. RAND's Douglas Young wrote recently about how expanding the National Wastewater Surveillance System could provide important data that can help track the spread of COVID-19. By tracking wastewater, public health officials could access information that shows where the virus is headed, not where it has already been, as is the case with other commonly used data points such as cases and deaths. Wastewater provides a true community-level picture of near-real-time disease spread. The data is continually created, pooled, and anonymized providing policymakers with specific and understandable indicators to inform when to reinstate or relax public health measures like mask mandates, depending on whether viral spread is increasing or decreasing. Having such data available could change the way the country fights not just COVID-19, but future pandemics
0: too. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered in this episode, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.